Hi everyone, it's Scott. In light of recent protests over police brutality, the new Black At movement, and the ongoing national conversation about race, diversity, equity, and inclusion, we are releasing a special episode this month devoted to discussing the disparate experiences and outcomes based on race and racism in independent schools, and how we can reckon with systemic racism and support students of color. We hope you'll continue to share your stories and experiences with us, and that this episode and the related resources we'll post on our website will be helpful for you and your school community during this time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Artina Hamilton, Associate Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Interlochen Center for the Arts in Interlochen, Michigan. Artina, welcome to Member Voices. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you. So uh, just as some background, can you tell us how long you've been at uh, the Interlochen Center for the Arts? It'll be two years um, next week, as a matter of fact. Oh, great. Uh, Early congratulations. How did you find it? Had you been in independent schools previously or was this something new? Somewhat. So previously I had worked with a program in Atlanta that was affiliated with the Lovett School. Um, But this is really my, I would say, really true first time engaging with an independent school. And I have a performing arts background um, in high school and middle school. I played the double bass and was heavily involved in musical theater. So I was Mm -hmm. quite familiar with Interlock and Center for the Arts. I'm interested then in in your perspective coming in, you know, not coming from a background or at least an extensive background in independent schools. What what was kind of your take on the climate of of inclusion and and diversity and equity, you know, when you started at at Interlochen? Well, I would have to say looking at Interlochen and my previous institution, because we still work with a independent school, Mm -hmm. I understood that a lot of the independent schools were not as diverse. They were working on it. We know that there were a lot of schools that were creating um, diversity positions. I've attended the People of Color Conference um, a couple of times, so I was familiar with those conversations. But at the same time that we had those positions, there still was a lot of growth in that area. Um, Typically, at a lot of the independent schools, they are predominantly white when it comes to the faculty administrators, but the student body is a little bit more diverse. So I knew that was an area of growth. And then also one of the things that I constantly talk about is legacy versus the future. So, you know, this really tight spot of tension, uh, we want to preserve the legacy and traditions, but we also want to be innovative and we also want to grow. So I knew that was an area that, you know, kind of growing edge for independent schools. And then how do you think, if at all, your approach to, you know, these issues has changed over the course of your, you know, two years at Interlock and um, and in light of of recent events? Well, I think... uh Primarily, my background is coming from higher education. I Obviously, higher education, because of the resources, it is moving a little bit quicker. And I found that I'm um, coming into Interlochen in particular, and most independent schools, there is a desire, but not necessarily the resources completely to do the work. And at the same time, it's also how do we balance the work with cultivating young minds? We are a performing arts school, so we're really challenged with and a boarding school. So, you know, our kids spend more time with us than they do their parents. So we're trying to develop them as scholars, also as future artists. And um, the mission, our mission is really because of this world-long leadership. So at the beginning, the work was really about recruiting and bringing in um, faculty and staff of color 
and mm-hmm. making sure the infrastructure was solid. But increasingly what I noticed, even I would say kind of at the, the beginning of COVID is that there are other conversations that need to be had. So you can have adults here and you have a diverse population, but also how do these things that happen in the world affect us? You know, it's a, it's a really nice isolated bubble but the world is seeping in. You know, our kids are very active on social media. There's so many other um, influences. So for me, the shift of the work is that we also recognize that our kids are going to go into the world, but also we are part of that world. We are responsible for preparing them for the world. You know, here at Interlochen, we have several, several, several students. Once they graduate, they go off to major cities, they go off to art schools and conservatories and, you know, really prestigious, amazing places that are on par with Interlochen, but they're also in major cities where some of these protests are happening, right? They are also students that come from other countries. So when they leave our grounds, when they leave this beautiful place between the lakes, what happens? So that is really where my work is beginning to kind of seep into. And you mentioned social media, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. So there's the recent Black At movement, which is you know forcing many schools to face uh, uncomfortable truths and, and histories. What is what is your take on that, and and how do you feel like that could provide an opportunity for uh, for school leaders? You know, what should they be doing with with this movement, and how should they be reacting to it? In your mind? Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, I, well, actually, I think it is. Really, uh, this moment, um, you know, it's a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a shaking of the table, a change of the guard. What has happened in social media? It's been happening. Um, as a faculty member, I frequently talk about the whispers in the hallways. Our students have conversations concerning things that happen with the faculty, administrators, and even other students, but we don't bring it into the classroom. But it really shapes their life. So uh, mm-hmm. all of these um, accounts, you know, the Black Independent Schools, there's also accounts connected to being in opera, being in theater, um, Black in higher ed, Black in the ivory tower. Those are indicative of uh, experiences that our students are experiencing still and have experienced. I think it's a great uh, point where we can work on healing. Many of the people that are involved in these um, conversations, it's I think it began with a lot of our our younger alum, right? But it's also the older alum who did not have a voice and honestly didn't have a medium. And one of the things that I talk about in my own work as a scholar, as a geographer, I talk about these sites of belonging and sites of trauma. Uh, for so long, educational spaces, be it K through 12 or higher education, have been these sites of racialized trauma for uh, Black, Indigenous, and um other students of color. They are places where you were able to get an amazing education, but the education was um, about the cost of sacrificing yourself. And now we're at a place where students are saying that I received this great education and I was able to really climb up in the world, but what did it cost me? So I think it would be really wise for administrators and faculty to look at these uh, posts, to not shy away from them. Um, These are things that are amazing points of discussion. They should not be whispers in the hallway. I I can tell you from my own experience, um, uh, pursuing my own PhD um, at at my own university, my doctoral program, I too wrote um, a piece about my experiences uh, called The Geography of Despair that talks about what it was like to be a Black woman uh, pursuing a PhD in a discipline as well as an institution that was predominantly white. And I found that experience to be very um, 
freeing, but also it opened up other conversations in my discipline where I have other people and deans and chairs that are reaching out and saying, what can we do? And so I, I think the same thing can happen with the social media accounts as well as the Twitter hashtags. The the other point of this is um, also it is a warning. It is a, a note of warning. So if you refuse to look at these social media posts and hashtags and take them seriously, what you do is you potentially alienate um, students because parents want to know where am I dropping my student off at and also um, alienating not only your alumni but donors. We know that there is a large movement where donors as well as national organizations are moving towards social justice um, funding. The Mellon Foundation, for instance, just announced that they're going to be um, allocating a lot of money towards that. But then the next point, when we talk about tradition and legacy, if you want to be valid, now in this world, in this uh, post-COVID, post-Black Lives Matter movement, it's still going on. The reality is that this is connected to our brand. Um, there are several institutions, um, even before I would say this year in the past years, who kind of ignored these movements. And what we saw was the complete dismantlement of programs as well as leadership. So it really, in some ways, it should be a kind of cheat sheet to what's happening at the, at the school on, this, on the ground level. So while we're on the, the the subject of social media and the black ad movement, I did want to also touch on and discuss the subject of racial trauma. Are you able to to share any any thoughts uh, on that as well? So uh, when I the way that I talk about trauma, so I do a lot of work around um, mental and emotional. Um, and racialized trauma. A lot of this has looked at higher ed. So I talk quite extensively in my own writing about my own experience attending graduate school, pursuing a graduate degree. But what the racialized trauma does, it, it has an impact on your body. A lot of times with our younger students, there are moments of a disconnect where students come into an environment, uh, particularly a predominantly white environment, where they are constantly questioning themselves, their identity. Um, they feel dizzy. They feel just out of sorts. And I've talked to students about this. And, you know, one of the things that comes up is, well, maybe it's in my head. Maybe I'm being sensitive. There's microaggressions. There's blatant acts of racism. And so when students experience this trauma, they become socialized to that. And so it becomes like a norm and you develop these kind of coping mechanisms. And so I think, you know, the Black Act movement is a response to this trauma for many people who attended um, independent schools and any other predominantly white institution, um, we are survivors. There is, of course, this major hashtag movement, Black and Ivory Tower, that talks about the experience of being um, Black as a graduate student, even as a tenured faculty member, and being other. So I think that for our independent schools to, again, consider talks on inclusion, you have to also look at the ways in which um, these towers have uh, created and in some ways manufactured this kind of racialized trauma, that there are generations of students who would be amazing leaders, they would be amazing alumni, donors, they would send their kids to our schools, but they have these experiences of trauma and even if you don't understand it, the biggest thing I always tell my white colleagues is to understand that it exists. Once you acknowledge that it exists, it's easy, well, not easy to get rid of it, but to tackle it. 
I think that's the biggest thing. It's I can't explain it. I know I've experienced it. It is it is a feeling where your stomach drops. You feel nervous. You're always on edge, and it, it, it's it's psychic safety. You do not feel safe. It would be the example of me as a woman walking in an alley like at two in the morning by myself without a cell phone. That is what that trauma feels like. And I'm very passionate about really addressing that and helping us remove that racialized trauma. And and how do you talk to students about this? How do you counsel them if they want to take an active role in, in protests against racial injustice or police brutality, or if they feel like they're being, you know, treated unfairly or discriminated against. Uh, have you had those conversations? And, and can can you share what, what you've said? Um, well, within the independent world, I'm going to say no, but I will say that we've talked about uh, the possibilities of, of feeling othered in the classroom. But I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think in the fall, that is going to be a conversation. So what happens when we have students that want to have a protest on campus or what happens when the students want to have a dialogue? Um, my advice, you know, to leadership at my own institution as well as students, we have to create consistent conversations. We know that the new presidential election is going to be another deeper conversation that we need to prepare for. Mm-hmm. So for me, it is empowering the students, but educating the students. How can we do this as a collaborative approach where it is both educational, but it also instills leadership in the students, but it's also something that's not viewed as disruptive. But we also need to bring history into context. You know, if you think about Black Lives Matter, I know that four years ago, it was viewed extremely on the edges. You can even bring it up. It, it meant something different. But today we see the kind of corporization of it, but also the movements and the activities that our students are involved in today that seem kind of crazy, they will be really um, acts of democracy tomorrow. Those are things that will be legacies for our institutions. And we do see where a lot of schools are looking at that. I know at Interlochen, what I'm trying to do here is we're going to have several conversations with our faculty, our staff, our students, um, and really listening to what our students need. I think that's the other part. Before I can really guide a student what do the students need? You know, sometimes the students merely want you to listen. Sometimes they want you to stand beside them. So I think that that is part of it. And also getting our adult community to understand that our students are really, they're young. They need leadership and guidance. And in order for them to really be open to us and not have the whispers in the halls and have these kind of, you know, behind the underground movement, we have to be vulnerable with them. We have to tell them what we don't know and what we wish we did know, and we have to learn together. Yeah, I wanted to talk about those adults as well that you mentioned. So when it comes to parents, do you have a role in in helping them support their children's advocacy efforts, or, or do you interact with the parents at all? What would you say to them? Well, as I mentioned, this is a new um, position. I, I was doing the work before, but, you know, the role is constantly involving, but I definitely think parents are involved. Mm-hmm. I think definitely um, within the context of a boarding school, it's a unique situation because um, typically our kids are, 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 we're interested with the kids and, you know, we contact the parents if something happens and we give checkups. But I think now the involvement is going to be a little more in depth. There's going to be a little more required. It's going to be more of a kind of communal environment. I'm not saying the independent schools weren't communal, but communal in that sometimes the parents may want to text you and call you and ask. 
my student, my child went through this particular trauma. I'm afraid that my child might be racially profiled. This is a concern for me. And you had to address it. Uh, again, I'm in northern Michigan. Um, it is it's predominantly white where I'm at um, in this area. And so the thing that I constantly talk about is, while our our our, universe, our excuse me our school is a site of belonging and we're working on it, we also had to incorporate that into the local geographies into the town. Um, our president Trey Debbie he's having conversations with some of the local officers here. So there's other conversations that are going to extend past the acres of your land to ensure that you know the students are safe and also that ensures and it really um, lets the parents know. It's okay because I know that's the other issue with recruitment. You know, we know that there is going to be challenges with recruitment, especially with our international students. But as far as domestic students of color, there are so many open markets out here. There are a multitude of parents of color who would love to send their kids um, to boarding schools and independent schools. But our track record has not been, and it's not well. So even when we show up at these recruitment fairs, the question of, okay, financial aid, that's not necessarily something that parents of color are concerned with. They're concerned with, is my child going to be okay? And are they going to be equipped to handle the world? And how will you treat them? So in my role, that definitely is part of it. It is letting the parents know, not only are we creating um, a place that should really replicate how you raise them, but also there are resources here. And not just the resources of the Black, Indigenous um faculty and staff of color, right? We also have to have culturally competent um, white colleagues and white employees too that are involved in this work. That's certainly, uh, you know, one step. Are there other steps that you hope to take or plan to take or maybe have already started to take to move your school along on the, the anti-racism path or, uh, or recommendations for other schools? Obviously, I think, you know, when I talk about diversity, we have to acknowledge that Diversity and inclusion should be intersectional. I think that far too often it's a binary of black and white. And then, of course, we talk about LGBTQ issues um, without context, but there's ableism, there's social class, um, there's geography, there's all these things. Right now, at this moment, we're centering discussion around blackness and anti-blackness in particular. So we are having um, open open um, house and town hall meetings with um, our provost. Um, Camille Kalatasti and our president, um, Trey Davies, along with myself. We are also preparing to build this uh, infrastructure into our back-to-school orientation, not only for new students, but as well as our um, existing students. And as I mentioned before, bringing our alumni into the conversation, having open houses with them. And of course, we're doing read-ins. But what I think is different about our read-ins, we want to make sure that our faculty and our staff and our adult population and students read books. But for me, it is about giving them literature that connects to where they are right now. Um, as someone pointed out to me the other day, I, I think everyone wants to read Stamp from the beginning and they want to read Right Fragility, but there's other entry points. There's other stories to be told. One thing that I'm going to do this um, year is have a series of conversations called Dialogues on that really tap people in our community to talk about their own experiences. You don't always have to go check out a big reading list off of Amazon. There are issues and experiences right there on your campus that can help you deal with anti-racism practices. And then the other point is um, around curriculum. 
So I am teaching a couple of African-American studies classes. We also have other faculty who've always taught classes um, dealing with intolerance and bigotry. And then the other point I would say is just a constant, continuous training, professional development. It cannot only be this moment um, during February. It has to be constant, continuous. So with us, we are uh, getting training not only within the realm of the educational atmosphere, but also HR, our HR department. Um, they are undergoing and teaching um, courses on implicit bias. Our trustees are being trained. And, you know, again, talking about the hierarchy of the school, which is also an equity issue, it also, the focus cannot only be on the people that we see, the visible labor, which I like mm-hmm. to refer to as our administrators and faculty, your your hourly workers, right? The people who are, you know, taking care of our kids in the evening, there is almost this kind of invisibility cloak around this labor that happens. But those individuals sometimes have more of an impact and more interaction. And then if we talk about equity, we can't leave them out of discussion because their stories also matter. So for us, it's about tackling every single piece. And of course, since we are an arts institution, it's about really acknowledging, excuse me, acknowledging historically um, how race has been a problem in the arts how um, just the 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 experience of young artists and the development, um, it's so, so important that these issues be addressed because a lot, if we don't address them now, they're experiencing the same things in the professional world. And what, if you're able to identify it, do you think is is the the biggest obstacle or or biggest challenge for for you uh, right now in this work? You know what what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? I think, you know, it's it's funny. Um, while my work, you know, deals with um, anti-racism and diversity, I also think of COVID. You know, COVID is, as I like to say, COVID was in the background doing burpees and push-ups as all the uprisings were happening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that we really don't know what's going to happen. So much of this work is connected to connectivity. Uh, when I facilitate conversations, when I have one-on-ones, when I meet with parents and other leaders, it's face-to-face. Um, Zoom is fine, but there's something about the intimacy. There's something about sitting with students. There's something about sitting with colleagues and walking them through things. Um, and then the other thing, I think our students were, you know, their world was shaking up. And in addition to COVID um, and the uprising and the protests, there is PTSD. Uh, we know that we have students with social emotional issues, but there's a PTSD that I am fearful is going to have an impact on our students. What does it mean to come into an environment where you are quarantined and you're on lockdown because we want to keep you safe, but also you are influenced by the outside world? I think all everyone's going to be in a bubble in the fall for safety, but at the same time, because you're in a bubble, sometimes it can kind of exacerbate um, issues which goes back to what I mentioned before about, you know, preemptively thinking about it and having discussions and really, really expanding our understanding of leadership. You know, I always say the leadership, it consists of being innovative, um, also hearing inconvenient truths, but expanding our definition that beyond best practices, there are some things that we will have to do that are you know, outside of our wheelhouse, but to keep our kids safe, but more importantly, to keep them educated, we have to do these things. 
it seems like it's making a you know a hard thing even harder. Where do you turn to in uh, for inspiration? You know, when you're when you're looking at this at this situation, what do you look to to inspire you to move forward? Well, I am very active on social media. It's funny. So um, I, I read a lot. You know, I'm a super nerd. I've been in school forever. Um, There's some amazing books out there, which I'm sure most people have read. But like what I find inspiring is looking at social media, you see a lot of scholars, academics and practitioners that talk about how their schools are dealing with the oncoming student population. But then also, I look at some of these accounts, the Black Ad accounts, because it may seem as if it is all trauma, but it's also hope. What is happening is people are acknowledging an experience and they're crying out for assistance. Um, when people don't care, they don't mention your name, they don't talk about you, but there is hope there. One of my favorite poets, uh, Rumi, he has this amazing uh, quote. It says, the wound is a place where the light enters you. And that's what's happening right now. The hope is our students, our alum are saying we are tired and something has to change. And we see these massive movements happening. And so that means that it's something I can fix because you're telling me the issue. That's hopeful. Also, I'm extremely hopeful because I can give you an example of a kind of light bulb moment for me. Last year, let's see, in the fall, um, I started, my role kind of was extended. I became a faculty member and I taught a class called Race, Space and Place. It's a critical uh, look at really critical race and kind of like the formation of race, looking at indigenous people, African-Americans, Italians, Irish, et cetera. And the first day of class, my students are really nervous and they're like, I don't talk about race. I'm scared to say black. And they were mm. petrified. Um, and that was a one semester class. Second semester, I taught two other classes, um, black women, feminism and Beyonce and an introduction to African-American studies class. I had a lot of students that uh, joined me during the second semester and also some new students. And at the end of the semester, even though we ended the class early, students were able to articulate clearly their understanding of race, to talk about their shame, their fear, um, and just the feeling of helplessness. And these are students who, honestly, some of them didn't want to be in the class, but they were there and they learned. And they enjoyed it and they talk about it. And, you know, mm. a lot of students reached out to me during these protests and were like, what can we do? I'm activated. I want to do something. And they're talking to their parents. That's another part of it. We have this tradition of an open house in October and um, we have and our parents come in. So, you know, my students are talking about the construction of whiteness and they're talking about the invisibility of oppression and systemic uh, racism. And their parents are like, whoa, and the students are excited. That excites me. That is energizing because it tells me that if we have these conversations now, especially at our our independent schools, that maybe we won't have these other conversations in the future because we know a large amount of the socialization, it starts early on, right? People Mm -hmm. typically go to the same types of schools they attend at K through 12. And so when will you have that conversation That is the point. So knowing that we can have these conversations and students are excited about it. And also, I will say my colleagues, um, I had several colleagues reach out to me after I posted a couple of things from Medium telling me, you know, they were they first of all, they uh, empathize with me. Right. They understood me in a way that maybe they didn't before because they hadn't really talked to me. But, you know, this kind of 
shaking up because it's been happening. But I think now it is on a stage that it wasn't there before. And so people are really beginning to understand how all this stuff is connected. If one person is oppressed, it may sound corny, we are all oppressed. So that energizes me that this moment is not only about our community, it's other communities as well. And I, I know that you've mentioned, you know, the the importance of just having a conversation and, and just talking with people at your school and in your own backyard. But I did want to see if, you know, even if people have already heard it, I th- still think it might be helpful to put it out there. Any any books that you would highly recommend, any podcasts, anything that you've been listening to or, or reading or watching that you would you would recommend on this topic? Well, of course, I know everyone knows about white fragility, uh, yeah. but there are some other books. That's the thing. There's like this like list of books you must read, but I think there's some other books that are that are more nuanced and to kind of explain issues. So, for instance, um, Kevin Cruz, White Flight. It is an amazing book that talks about um, Atlanta and how literally segregation shaped the city. We view Atlanta as being this very inclusive space, but for a lot of our schools that are in major cities, especially cities that are kind of uh, at those racial fault lines, that book will help you understand how geography shapes race and racist practices. I would also say, of course, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, that is an amazing book, a work of fiction. And Making Whiteness by Grace Elizabeth Hill, this is an amazing book for a few reasons. Um, It talks about, it starts in the South, and it talks about how racism, you know, anti-Blackness becomes codified in the landscape and in society after Reconstruction, but it talks about the continuity of it, and it talks about how whiteness was made. So one of the things I constantly talk about with my students is that whiteness was not always the way that we view it now. Whiteness was about being white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and with money. And people that did not meet those qualifications, they didn't have access to it. There's so many amazing books. Uh, Also, I would say Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. It's a little older book. Um, Derek Bell, I believe, is a sociologist. And the book has these kind of uh, social justice type of, um, what do you call it, um, fiction stories that talk about um, justice the way we see it today. And then, of course, I'll even add my own work. I'm on sure. Medium. I wrote a piece called The Geography of Despair that really talks about the experience of being a Black person in a white space. And then there was another poem I wrote called Shed So Many Tears, which talks about the everyday experiences of just being Black in America. That must be uh, really interesting. You got your doctorate in, in geography, you said, and, and that's. can you talk a little bit more about how that's informed your work? So I think that when most people think about geography, they think of just a map, they think of these points, but geography, I'm a human geographer, it's really about belonging and exclusion. So I'm looking at how geography shapes us. So one of my favorite exercises that I like to do when I'm leading a workshop or teaching, I talk about the geography of our body. So we can do this exercise with you. So when you, when someone walks into a room, what is the first thing that you notice about them? Um, I would say they're face. Okay. What about their face? Probably their, their mood or their, their kind of disposition, I guess. Okay. What else do you notice? I, I mean, I would notice their, their eyes and I, I bet I probably notice their complexion too, even if it's subconscious. Yes. Yes. So whenever I do this exercise first, so, so you're pretty, you're pretty normal as far as that people always avoid saying the race, but we notice their race. 
We notice yeah. their gender presentation, right? We notice mm-hmm. their clothes. Um, and then they open their mouth. And we immediately notice how they talk. Um, our accent, our dialect, it says something about our social class. Well, it's, it's an assumption about it, right? So it says something. So when I was teaching in um, the South, when I taught at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, a lot of my Southern students talked about how they would get rid of their Southern accent, depending on where they were at. So our body is a map. It's a marker. It has markers of social class, of gender, sexuality, et cetera. So that's one thing. The other thing is our environment we are constantly living and moving through geographies. So when I talk about belonging, what I'm talking about is that it doesn't have to be a state or a city. It's the place that you occupy. So if you think about your most pleasant memory of growing up during the holidays, maybe, and you would go into your grandparents' house and you smell that banana bread or that cake, or, you know, there's a, a feeling, a nostalgia feeling, or there's also these kind of unspoken um uh, there's other spaces where you don't feel like you belong and there's kind of unspoken uh, signs. So exclusion. So my geography is very much about the temporal and the emotional fill of the space. So adding that to our independent schools, for some of our BIPOC students, there is this assumption that's an exclusionary space. It is a space that is different from how they grew up. Um, it is an elite space, which means that they have to change their physical, personal geography. They have to change their accent. They can't bring their hair products to school. Um, they can't dress the way they typically would dress because they would be out of it as being different. But what we want to do is make it into a place of inclusion where when they feel there, they can relax. Excuse me, when they drive up, they can relax. I know for me, I am an introvert. I mean, I seem like it, but whenever <laughs> I go into these, you know, I know I talk a lot, but whenever I go into these, um, these big meetings of the the first time I get nervous. I feel these uh, little tingles in the back of my neck. It's because that is an unfamiliar space. So that's really what my work uh, really addresses um, is how these spaces and these sites are constantly changing. A lot of my work um, has been focused in Atlanta. I can, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, but Atlanta is my spiritual home. And in my doctoral dissertation, that's what I wrote about. I wrote about um, how black lesbians create spaces of belonging. They're not in a physical site. They're just wherever people gather. And that's really what our our uh, communities of color are experiencing at independent schools. If there's one or two or three, that is a community. But what we need to do is we need to broaden that community. It is amazing and great to provide affinity spaces, but we really want our students to feel as if the entire campus, the entire geography of the campus is a space of belonging for them. Do you have a proudest moment? So um, let's see, right before COVID, we began to shut down. We had this, uh, it was an arts and activism fair. It was our first time doing it at Interlochen. Um, So it consisted of a lot of workshops where faculty would teach different skills to talk about different topics. And so my students, I always require more from my students. I tell them, you know, they're celebrations of learning. <laughs> so I told my students, I said, hey, you're going to present at this conference. Because one of the things that I really try to encourage um, my students to do is to push themselves to limits. So um, my students in my um, Black Women Feminism and Beyonce class uh, they worked in small groups and they each developed uh, 
conference presentation. So you can imagine they're high school students. Yes, they had to speak in front of their colleagues and it's nerve wracking, but they, they were amazing. Um, one of my groups of students, they had a presentation that looked at street harassment um, with women in New York city. So they played a video of a woman that's walking through the city and then they're talking about it. And it's very nuanced. And they were really pushing students to move beyond uh, conventional thinking. And then there was another uh, session that I co-led with some students. It was a workshop called You Have a Right to Be Mad. And we talked about um, social anxiety and depression, which is another one of my uh, areas that I'm very passionate about. And we really talked about how as students, as people, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be vulnerable. Because one of the things that I'm noticing now, especially, it's kind of weird. We have this moment of hyperbullying that occurs on the social media, but our kids, they're sensitive, but they're scared to express themselves. And they feel that at 13 and 14, they should have it all figured out. So we had this session, we were playing some Beyonce, we played uh, Solange, and it was a packed room. And my kids are helping um, lead these sessions and they're talking to their classmates about feelings and vulnerability. And like people were just excited and clamoring for to have this conversation. Um, and that also to me was about diversity and inclusion because again, we don't talk about mental health as something that's different, but it's something that should be included in the conversation as well. So that was just amazing. And again, some of these students are students that I had in the fall who would not say Black, they would say African-American, and they would say, I don't talk about race, I'm scared, I don't want to be wrong. So going from I don't want to be wrong to leading the discussion and pushing their, their, their colleagues, their cohorts to talk, that was just amazing. And just it is, even now, I'm just like super excited because for me, that is the work. It's not just okay, here's a workshop, excitement. It is how can we transform the minds of our students and give them a lasting impact. So as schools are looking towards the uh, upcoming semester, the fall semester in light of COVID and protests over police brutality and these ongoing national conversations, uh, what do you feel are the most important ingredients a school needs to succeed in, in those areas and, and, and to, you know, cultivate anti-racist uh, spaces of belonging and, and do it amongst a, a pandemic? Lean into being uncomfortable. I can say as a Black woman, when I go into multiple, in, into most spaces, I'm uncomfortable, um, especially as I like to call it, you're the one. For many Black, Indigenous, people of color, we are the only one at our institution, in our office, at our level, um, and that is constant, continuous. It does not end. So lean into being uncomfortable so that you can actually really have the conversation in an authentic way. And there is no wrong answer. There's misinformation. Um, and then the last thing I would say is you can't avoid this. I think that sometimes there is this kind of, uh, what is it? I, I heard the word platitudes a lot, right? There's the kind of apolitical, all is well, you know, I'm going to keep my head to the air, wish for the for better days. Well, the reality is we're in 2020 and we're kind of behind. Things are changing. They're changing at such a drastic level. And we cannot hope and wish for better days. We have to actually transform it. But also for, you know, I would say our senior leadership and our heads of school, um, it's not a decision that you have to make by yourself. 
it should always be um, a collaborative decision. I know at our institution, Interlock Center for the Arts, our president always talks about shared leadership, and that's what it is, shared leadership. So you should be able to have these conversations. And more importantly, your employees should be able to have a conversation with you. I know that even before having this position, I was having multiple conversations and I'm not going to lie, I was a little nervous, you know, and your employees shouldn't be nervous. And it was positive on my end, but there are probably places and spaces where it's not safe. Well, the the issue is if your employees cannot communicate this information to you, then it becomes a whisper in the hallway and then it grows out of control. So I would say just being really open um, to these conversations and also walk around, get out of your office. You know, there are so many things that you don't know that can really kind of um, enhance your leadership and really help extend the legacy of the school, because that's really what we're talking about. It's not just that this school was founded a long time ago. It is we want this school to live on and we want it to grow. We want it to change and we want it to flourish and thrive. Well, Artina, it's been, you know, such a a privilege uh, uh, speaking with you today. I've loved it. So thanks so much for sharing your time and, and, and your thoughts and yourself with us. I think that it, it's been great. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. You can visit NAIS.org slash member voices to explore resources related to my conversation with Artina, including tools to help you address systemic racism and inequity and foster an ongoing and healing dialogue at your school. You can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes or subscribe to automatically receive a new podcast episode each month. Please be sure to listen, rate, and review each new episode and go back and listen to past episodes you may have missed. Uh, We'll be back with a new episode in August focused on reopening schools, and we hope you'll join us. And also, if you have any ideas for what or who you'd like to hear on the podcast, please let us know. You can send your ideas and suggestions to membership at neis.org.